Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, grinning like an idiot every 15 minutes. That's about the same as usual then. This red cap is getting a rap from those critics. <laughs> He certainly is. He certainly is. Um, we have a big, big, big film to talk about this week, and I'm excited to break it down with you, Cam. But before we get there, we have to induct our latest Spy Hearts Die Hard. Yes, we do indeed. And of course, if you want to become a Spy Hearts Die Hard, leave a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts and write out a review, and we will read it on the show and give you a very special code name inspired by the film we are tackling that very week. Now, this week, I don't know that the title lends itself as much to a code name, so I will be picking something inspired by that film. Oh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have lined up, but uh, here we go. Joining the ranks of the Spy Hards Die Hards this week, it is Evil Ed from the U.S. Apple Podcasts, and they write, I'm diehard for spyhards. Ooh, they're on to the little uh, trick we've got going on here. Yeah. Mm, they are, they are, they are. Five stars. I discovered the podcast thanks to the much-missed James Bond A to Z podcast, and I will, as an aside, add, I very much miss them too. Much love to Tom, Brendan, and the team. Yeah. The guys discuss all kinds of interesting movies as well as bring in some very cool guests. Looking forward to what they bring us in 2024. Keep up the excellent work. Well, thank you so much, Evil Ed. And I mean, that's a pretty good codename unto itself. It is. However, however, going forward, your Spy Hard's Die Hard nickname is Chimera. Oh, that's good. I didn't think of that. Chimera's great. Right? That's perfect. That's a pretty damn good one. Naked Runner was a good one, but Chimera is really good too. It's not even like Agent Chimera, just Chimera. Yeah. It's like, it's like Prince, one word. Exactly. And now this is making me really question, like, maybe I shouldn't just be using the names of the movies. Although, if it's called Naked Runner or something like that, that's going to be your code name. But I think I might be a little more creative with some of them as well. Yeah, stuff like Red 2 doesn't lend itself to being a code name. Code name Red is actually not bad, but yeah, Red 2, no way. Yeah, for sure. But Evil Ed, welcome to the Spy Hards Die Hard. And of course, folks, if you want to become a Spy Hards Die Hard, as Cam said, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll pick it up and we'll read it out on the show. As long as it's five stars, we'll basically read anything. So that's your challenge. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, we'll read anything. Anything. We're desperate for content. And um, before we just get launched into the episode at hand, just want to give an apology for anyone who hears construction noises going on on my microphone today. Uh, just to my left, outside my window, they are building a volcano lair, and it's a little distracting, but if it makes you feel better, it woke me up at 7.30 this morning, and the morning before, and the morning before, so I'm suffering more than any of you, but yes, my apologies. It's not a very good secret volcano lair if they're building it in the middle of the street in downtown Vancouver. Well, it's not so much downtown Vancouver. It's North Vancouver, but uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, hey, it's a, it's a volcano lair for everyone to try out. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a public service. Yeah. And cheaper than a moon base. So. For sure. For sure. We haven't got to worry about gravity. Hopefully they have uh, some attack piranhas down there or dolphins with lasers. We'll find out. I will go investigate as soon as we're done. 
Absolutely can. But I think without further ado, let's get to the review. Okay, Cam, the time is here. Before we introduce this week's film, we have to introduce this week's guest. And this is a big film, so we needed a big guest. He is one half of the Mission Impotable podcast. He is the only man I know that could make a two-hour conversation out of Taken 3. And he is the only guest we've ever had before to order lunch whilst recording the podcast. It is none other than Nathan Flynn. Hello, sir. How are you? Woo! I'm doing all right, guys. I guess woo actually works. Oh, bang on! That was just the way that I thought. So hey, hey, we're we're killing it. I'm doing all right, guys. Uh, it's it's been a minute since I've waxed poetically on the career of Liam Neeson. Now we'll just go into the career of Dougray Scott, which is the connection between those two movies because they recast Dougray Scott as the fucking uh, what's his name as the, the Xander the... Berkeley character in Taken. Yeah. Yeah, Xander Berkeley character, which it's like, huh, I wonder who's behind this. It's like, well, they recast him with, <laughs> with Dougray Scott, <laughs> a guy who constantly has, like, no charisma. Uh, no offense. I mean, Dougray, you must have some charisma or a lot of money to uh, be married to Claire Fulani. So you're doing well for yourself. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that until I was watching uh, the film in question for this week that I was suddenly like, wait a second, is Nathan our Dougray uh, Scott specialist? <laughs> uh, I mean, what's that name of the, I wanted to say Night Swim, that's Sea Fever. I'm like, I've seen that one. <laughs> sea Fever, never heard of it. It was a 2020 movie. Okay, okay. Fair Exists enough. in that haze. Good little like the thing on a boat movie. Okay, sure. It's something that you get after watching too many Doug Ray Scott films. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I, I mentioned um, Mission Impossible off the top. And one thing I noted is last year, you guys came back, which was lovely to hear, to talk about Dead Reckoning. So I think, it, like, I think that is maybe the conversation off the bat before we get to this week's film. You host a Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible, I should say, podcast. What did you think of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? So I'm going to first position this with uh, the fact that I'm truly insulted that you guys put Guy Ritchie's Operation Fortune as like the best spy movie of 2023. <laughs> not me. I haven't even seen it. Okay. That was not me. Not me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely the best plane movie of 2023. I watched it on a plane. Hey, that explains it. Okay. That's the way it should be seen. Um, good movie. Er, okay, fine movie. But uh, no, no, Dead Reckoning uh, Part 1 absolutely rips. It's one of those where I was thinking about this before the recording. I'm like, huh, how do I put down how I feel about it? Because the past three Mission Impossibles before Dead Reckoning are kind of not on the same level as this movie, but they're like Raiders of the Lost Ark like level action perfection in this like past decade. I mean... Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout, mm. all just pretty widely beloved. Rogue Nation has a bit more of a cult behind it, if you can say that, for a big Tom Cruise vehicle. Yeah. Um, but Ghost Protocol is pretty well beloved. Same with Fallout. And those all just can function no matter what, really don't have anything to reckon with. It's just like three isolated good times. And you're following that up. And then you're also following up the best movie ever made, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, you know, just a cinematic high five up over here with fucking 
Dead Reckoning, which is a movie that takes some bold swings that I appreciate. Um, because there's, you know, third time's the charm with comedy and everything. Uh, there's only so many times you can have like a defective agent or some guy from an ambiguous country with a nuclear device. I mean, that's literally the entire formula for most of the show until they start to like crack down on drug dealers in the seventies. Um, <laughs> and the movies would get stale if they kept doing it unless they wanted to do drug dealers, which would be wild. Michael Mann's uh, fucking uh, Mission Impossible. But that's all in short. I think that it's a slight step down, but it's like the fourth best Mission Impossible movie is good company to be in. Hmm. Um, the action scenes are just absolutely blistering. Haley Atwell's fantastic. I think it does some wonky things with the characters. If the other ones are Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is like The Last Crusade. Where you're just like, just a slight step down. I'm not saying as good as The Last Crusade. I'm just saying that's the drop-off. Yeah, yeah. I can I can kind of follow you there. And I was actually re-watching Dead Reckoning last night. Oh, wow. Uh, just randomly. I was watching it with my parents, actually. And I really paid attention to how much of that movie is basically playing like a silent film. Oh, yeah. And I think more so than any other Mission Impossible film. It really is doubling down on sort of that Buster Keaton silent film vibe. Mm-hmm. Down to a direct reference to Sherlock Jr. Yeah. And and the general. There's so many. Oh, uh, yeah. And there's a million things about that movie that, like, I just absolutely love. Like, A, starts in a submarine. Great way for a movie to start, just in general. Um, B, you get this whole, like, you know, it, the, the big close-up magic idea of it all. The AI stuff, which, you know, we must give props this is the movie that got joe biden to take ai seriously as a threat <laughs> okay um, not even kidding signed an executive order after the fact so i mean props to christopher mcquarrie um outside of that uh any i could just watch a movie of shea wiggum chasing tom cruise and being winded yes 100 percent. and that entire train sequence and the fucking rome chase and it's just like it my uh my co-host would say it is a movie that is less than the sum of all of its parts, and I think I would agree. Those parts are really damn good. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, you allude to it to a tweet I made months ago now, which uh, which you can go and find and hold against me, folks, if you'd like. But it, it for me, and I, we've got on record about Dead Reckoning. Just I agree with everything you said there, Nathan. To be fair, like I, I I love all the little bits of Dead Reckoning. I just don't think it comes together at all. And I feel like it structurally is just not there. And so you're just watching skits tied together. And that's fun. But it's three hours of just, oh, wow. And then just talking. And then, oh, wow. And then just talking again. And so that was where I sort of bumped up against it. See, where I, where it lands for me is like, I know a lot of people are like, yeah, I was just very disappointed with it. You know, it was kind of like my biggest disappointment of the year. This is this past summer was a summer of like franchise movies just kind of uh dying in a ditch and mm-hmm. playing the hits. Mm-hmm. And if you take something like a movie that I think is perfectly fine and adequate, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, where it's just like playing the fucking hits for you. It's like, all right, he's old, like we did last time, and also uh the villains are nazis because they're the villains and all the indiana jones movies that everybody agrees are good marion's back salah's back i 
appreciate Dead Reckoning more for not playing the hits, even if it all didn't fully come together and they do a couple wonky things with characters. Yeah, and they play it weird. Because, you know, just rewatching it last night, when they are sitting it's there... It's a weird and goofy movie. It is. When they have that scene in the club... Yeah! And the entity's present, I'm just like, this is like a hallucination of a scene. And if you don't have Tom Cruise producing this movie and controlling that set, uh, I think a studio would be very nervous and giving a lot of notes. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a movie about a bunch of magicians slash spies slash uh, pickpockets fighting god in form of ai yeah and, and i think it's kind it's kind of lightly discussed how fucking weird that how weird that is you know it's also an, a movie about an aging movie star battling the future of technology in hollywood like yeah it's yeah, crazy 100 no, and also kind of battling the formula of his own movies in his own franchise it's just it it's far too interesting for me to dismiss yeah and it, it's far too well made for me to dismiss but uh, speaking of a movie that is slightly interesting and slightly well-made. Well, uh, now I know why you want to hate me. <laughs> that actually leads us very well, as you say there, Nathan. Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we talking about this week? We are reuniting with the IMF to tackle 2000's Mission Impossible 2, directed by John Woo. It's a film that's strangely near and dear to my heart that we'll get into. But for those of you who haven't gone on the second mission, somehow, here is your synopsis. Mission Impossible 2. Expect the impossible again. <laughs> so, so cute. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. With computer genius Luther Stickle, is that his name? Stickwell, isn't it? Well, you know what's funny distinction? The uh, the credits for this movie can't, like credit him as Luther Strickle, hmm. but it's actually Luther Stickle. Is it Stickle? I never okay. knew that. So so in this movie, his his code name is Strickle. <laughs> boy, oh boy, good good old Strickle. Yeah, we'll we'll try that again. With computer genius Luther Stickle at his side and a beautiful thief on his mind. Agent Ethan Hunt races across Australia and Spain to stop a former IMF agent from unleashing a genetically engineered biological weapon called Chimera. His mission, should Hunt choose to accept it, plunges him into the center of an international crisis of terrifying magnitude. Well, I gotta give props to Luther, who be, who was obviously deemed so valuable to this film <laughs> that he got the first name mentioned in that synopsis. Before Ethan Hunt. I mean, it's the only member of his team, for sure. There is no other IMF team member who hangs out with Tom Cruise in this movie at all that I noticed. Yeah, I mean, he definitely keeps, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh my gosh. No, that's his name. That's me. his name. What's his name? Oh, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. I feel bad. I feel bad. Billy Baird? Yeah, Billy Baird. He definitely keeps him at arm's length. Did that guy win a contest or something? Like <laughs> he's a pretty he was a pretty decent like character actor for a minute in Australia. Um Cam is coming in hot. Okay, I think I understand how this happened. I think this guy, you know, John Paulson is his name. He is like if they threw one of us into a like Mission Impossible movie surrounded by movie stars. It feels so weird. I would have to assume they're shooting in Australia. They want an Australian tax break and they had to cast a local actor in a prominent role. And that's probably how this guy wound up here. I mean, speak for yourself. I think I would fit in pretty well next <laughs> to Henry Cavill as like the person who takes a punch for him. Be locking those arms as you're like swinging punches. Yeah. Just immediately like a six, 
like his six one ass and my five eight ass <laughs> just thrown in there just to take one punch to the face. You are going straight in the van. To be fair, that's that's Tom Cruise height. Wow. Yeah. Mm. True. Not on an Apple car, it's not. Mm. Mm. Uh, they actually just CGI replace my, his face on a mine. <laughs> Make Cruise look the right size. Anyways. Well, I, I'm curious to know, before we get into maybe how this film was made, your origin stories with this film. So, I mean, I, I'll start a little bit. I saw this in theaters. I was so hyped about this film, mostly for the soundtrack. Mm. Yeah. You had long hair. At the time being. I had spiky gelled, uh, gelled hair that was dyed black. I was a full-on new metal boy. If you didn't have gelled hair by the time you started this movie, by the time you finish it in the theater, <laughs> your hair just immediately becomes slicked with gel, and you get free Oakleys on your way out. <laughs> you were downloading the shockwave for all the ladies in the cave <laughs> to get their groove on. <laughs> you really look like a member of the cast of Hackers. <laughs> So yes, you could say I was invested at the time, and I I very much bought into the marketing of this film and like the Mission Impossible, like the videos for like Metallica had uh, that, and and obviously the Limp Biscuit one too. It was all connected. I was definitely drinking the Kool Aid. But I'll throw it to you, Nathan. Were you invested in this film when it came out? So my relationship with the franchise has always been: I saw the TV show when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like you know I'm watching Bond, and it's like oh you can get Bond like on TV. You know, at a 60s TV budget, which, you know, admittedly doesn't look too far off from, like, some of the early, like, Bond movies, especially Dr. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, those Ken Adams sets, obviously, and, you know, yeah. everything else. Um, and then I watched the first Mission Impossible, or as I thought of it when I saw it as a kid, uh, Sneakers But Less Good. Ooh. Um, which is weird that I watched Sneakers before that. Um, but you know, the Langley heist being like my big, the Langley heist and the helicopter scene being the big part of it. And then Mm -hmm. I was old enough to like, be able to not watch mission impossible two in a theater per se, but like that DVD was like kicking, you know, you got the flames on it. You got Tom Cruise with a scar down his face. And I remember something not connecting with me about the movie. There's some like, like. It's weirdly mean, but it's also boring in places. And like, it feels like a Bond movie, but not a great Bond movie. More like Triple X, like the halfway point between Triple X and Bond. Mm. And but I still liked it more than the first one because it didn't betray me like the Phelps thing. And now I'm at the point where I have now lived with this movie uh, in more ways than I ever expected. And you know, my I've I've seen it countless times it's my least favorite of the mission impossible sorry to bury the lead right there um i'm sure everybody that's just an absolute shock to them how could you put this anything (laughs) below number one uh but you know it's still a fun time to some extent it's watchable cam so i was in a similar boat i guess as you scott where the soundtrack was a big deal. That was my big, like, going to Ozfest, heavy metal mm-hmm. period. Summer 2000, I was going to, like, the Metallica Summer Sanitarium tour. We went on a road trip to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I actually have vivid memories of sitting with my friend at a concert. I can't remember what concert it was, but talking about that soundtrack. 
right? Because it had, you know, new music from Godsmack and a lot of the bands that were also on kind of that Ozfest tour circuit mm -hmm. at that point yeah. in time. Um, and obviously Limp Bizkit was also a big deal. And my friend Derek was a massive Metallica fan. He was the reason we went to San Francisco and we went and saw Metallica a few more times over the next couple of years. Um, but he was also the reason that I fell so much in love with the first Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. He was the one that convinced me, no, you need to go back to this movie after I was kind of nonplussed the first time. And him and I obsessed over that, that first movie and watched it over and over and over again. And so when the second one was coming, not only do we have the connectivity of the music, but we also had the fact that we were such huge fans of the first one. So like Mission Impossible 2 was eagerly my most anticipated movie of that year. And I was absolutely dying to see it. And we went and ran out opening weekend and we thought it was fine. Mm. And I saw it the once in theaters and... I think I picked it up on DVD later on down the road, but I did not buy it as soon as it hit shelves. I picked it up, I think, used on eBay once um, eBay kind of became popular and was quite cheap. So mm -hmm. I probably bought the DVD for like $4 or something and saw it that way. But it never occupied a real special place for me. All the kind of um, nostalgia I have for Mission Impossible 2 comes more from the buildup and the anticipation and the excitement of kind of the things around it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the marketing campaign, the soundtrack, than the movie itself. I remember walking out, enjoying the movie, like convincing myself, no, that was a pretty fun action movie, but also pretty let down coming off the De Palma film. It's it's interesting because like from my side, musically, I was, I was playing guitar. I was in bands around this time. Like my, our opening track was Take a Look Around without the rapping. Yeah. So like I knew this song intimately. Uh, I I like styled my guitar playing on Wes Borland at that point. I was that sad. <laughs> I didn't cover myself in body paint. No, I didn't do it. Did you ever hear that Limp Bizkit song perform live? No, I've never heard it perform live. I have. <laughs> Two thousand three. Uh, <laughs> I've seen Limp Bizkit live, but never heard it. Never heard that song. I've heard I disappeared live. I think. Yeah, I have as well. Yeah, but. That's beside the point. I, I know what you mean there about like my experience and my memory of this film is more about the the stuff talking about my talking to my friends about this film at the time. It's not so much the experience of watching the film and my thoughts of it afterwards. I don't actually you know, going back to it for this episode and, and you know, just rewatching in the past few years, that I was almost like I was rediscovering the film. Mm, yeah. Like I'd forgotten most of the stuff that actually has happened in the film, which we'll get to. But yeah, I suppose in terms of like our previous experiences it sounded like we all went in quite hyped and came out less so yeah like i was a big fan of john woo um especially for like i don't think i'd watched a lot of his hong kong films at that point in time um but i really liked broken arrow and face off and hard target so like the adding of him to the film was actually more exciting to me than it would have been with brian de palma who i wasn't as familiar with when i was a teenager John Woo, it was like, oh my God, John Woo's making the next Mission Impossible. This is going to be the greatest action movie I've ever seen. And, eh. <laughs> well, to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, A, one thing I completely forgot about this movie is I had this book as a kid mm -hmm. that was like, get ready for like, here are all the iconic movie spies. And you have James Bond, you're like, all right, naturally, naturally, you see Sean Connery, Roger Moore. Pierce Brosnan parasailing uh, off the fucking, like, you know, the Serp thing. And then you flip the page to Tom Cruise rock climbing. Mm. And then you flip the page to Vin Diesel in Triple X. And for a moment, I was like, 
oh, so spies just do extreme sports. That's what the thing is. Yeah, more or less, more or and less. And you know, that was just kind of the 2000s, but uh, my relationship with John Woo weirdly comes later because I, I would, this was probably the first John Woo movie I ever saw. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why I'd even consider, what was I watching, Broken Arrow? Um, but then... Uh, it's a Broken Arrow shade right there. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I like Broken Arrow quite a bit. Uh <laughs> Actually, I think that's probably my second favorite American John Woo movie. Yeah. Uh, first being uh, Face Off. But then uh, later on, when I turned 13, like you do, you start like passing around like, have you ever seen Hard Boiled? Like, if you've seen Die Hard, you should fucking watch Hard Boiled. And me and a bunch of 13-year-olds watching Hard Boiled, losing our fucking minds. Then uh, The Killer, Better Tomorrow, Better Tomorrow Part 2. Bullet to the Head, which I just recently saw for the first time. Just all those, like, have you ever heard of this movie? Pass it under. So going back and revisiting it, I'm like, ah, that's the John Woo that I like. But as a kid, I was like, what is all of these doves and flamenco (laughs) dancing? And, you know. Why is everything slow motion? What's going on? Yeah. Well, Cam, I'm curious to know uh, how we got this second mission a mission so uh secretive so hard to conquer that they actually shortened the title to mi2 <laughs> so tom cruise was coming off of some pretty heavy projects eyes wide shut and magnolia eyes wide shut in particular the stanley kubrick film was very tiring for tom cruise it was a very 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 long intense shoot and i believe actually pushed the mission impossible to start date back a little ways mm-hmm. um and so tom cruise was going, I think, into something a little lighter. Probably like, you know what? I want to focus just on doing stunts and having fun as opposed to the intense psychological journey I've been on for the last couple of years. And he actually approached this movie as a standalone. He was not looking at it as a sequel. He wanted it to be its own specific movie that would not depend on ever having seen the first film. Which, mm-hmm. kind of bold, considering that the first one was such a huge hit that you'd think you'd want to you know, kind of work off of that, but not the case. It's kind of the James Bond formula. I mean, in a way, he kind of approaches this in the sense of like, not only is this a standalone adventure with Ethan Hunt, I'm going to almost be a different actor than who I was as Ethan Hunt in the first (laughs) film. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk about that. Oh, yeah, Uh, yeah, no, for sure. (laughs) So Tom Cruise uh, picked John Woo. And John Woo, we've talked about him, just legendary Hong Kong filmmaker. Started out in the late 60s working at Shaw Brothers Studios, which is the largest film production company in Hong Kong. Started out as an assistant director and then moved into making you know, his own films in the big chair, basically, as a director in, with the 1974 martial arts film, The Young Dragons. And just worked steadily for many years, cranking out action films. And it wasn't until 1986's A Better Tomorrow, which he wrote and directed, that that just kicks off that run where he's doing the two better tomorrows, um, the killer bullet in the head, hard boiled. And then right after hard boiled, he makes his shift to Hollywood. Basically hard boiled comes out in 92 in 93 hard target comes out in North America and has a bit of a rough start with hard target. I actually really like the movie. It's a fun little movie. It's a really solid Van Damme movie. Maybe his best. Uh, it's up. It's up in the air. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about JCVD. Oh, that that one's good too. But Wu did have a lot of kind of creative issues on Hard Target, 
where the movie was recut without his participation and not necessarily um, achieving the vision he had for that film. Mm -hmm. But then he has real success doing Broken Arrow and Face Off and rolls right into Mission Impossible 2 from Face Off. And I would have to imagine Tom Cruise sees Face Off and sees two massive stars, you know, Nick Cage, John Travolta, doing this high-octane action and is probably thinking, that looks like a lot of fun to take part in. And you got two massive stars, Tom Cruise and Dougaray Scott. <laughs> that was probably his note to John Woo. It's like, I want all of the star power. No one else can outshine me. Well, <laughs> it's it's one of those where, like, you can't really out movie star Tom Cruise. And this movie really, like, falters on it. Like, I'm trying to think of times where they've had, like, somebody who's had equal footing. Like, maybe Jamie Foxx and Collateral. Well, you put him with, like, Paul Newman or something like that. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, but that's, like, pre-Cruise. I mean, not pre-Cruise, but that's, like, in the middle of, like, yeah. Top Gun cements him that same year. I'm wrecking my brain. Um, I mean, it, it's not the same, but I would say, like, when they cast Cameron Diaz in Night and Day, that was a movie star opposite a movie star. Well, I think I think what works... Okay, I don't think much works about that movie, but yeah. what kind of works about that pairing is that Tom Cruise is like on the outs. Mm. To some extent, this is like right around the time where they're like, all right, so maybe Jeremy Renner could be the younger, hipper version of Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess maybe, what about um, Philip Seymour Hoffman opposite Tom Cruise? But that's character actor. You can out character yeah. actor him. That's why Sean Harris kind of works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why the villain of both Top Gun and Dead Reckoning are like these faceless entities. That's quite true. And Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I would say actually Emily Blunt maybe runs away with that movie, though. Oh, yeah. No, she totally does. I'd agree. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's like, uh, it's the same way that like, uh, well, no, Renee Zellweger. I wouldn't say that she necessarily runs away with Jeremy Gordon. And it's a tough, tough call. You could really rack your brain on all these but anywho yeah that'll be our spin-off tom cruise podcast that we'll have to launch uh where we can examine such such questions who can out movie star tom cruise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh not john polson not john polson we know that <laughs> he casts people that like had their shot to be tom cruise as like the person who tells tom cruise like you can't do that yeah. Henry Cavill in uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, Jeremy Renner. That's why you can never cast... That's why you can never cast Henry Cavill as James Bond, in my opinion. Is mm. that there will always be a clip of Ethan Hunt taking a hook to his fucking head. <laughs> and that's just there. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Tom Cruise, basically, when he met with John Woo, John Woo pitched it as... He said he wanted to make a romantic action-adventure film and remold Ethan Hunt into a new kind of hero. I am not sure what kind of hero that is, but it is different. I will say that much. A new kind of hero. That sounds like the tagline for X. I think in that era, James Bond is not running on fumes, but has sort of like worn out its excitement factor. And yeah, so there's yeah. probably a lot of scrambling, as we would see with uh, Jason Bourne a couple of years later, to try to create something new that drew in audiences. It was of that era where Mike Myers both went in and like wiped his ass with James Bond and folded them like laundry because International Man of Mystery comes out the same year as Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. 
and then you get World is Not Enough, which comes out the same year as The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah. And then, you know, Die Another Day in the same year as Gold Member, or at least the year before, I think. Yeah, year before. I think they were the same year. They were actually the same year, those two. No, no, no. I think it's 2002 for Die Another Day and then 2003 for Gold Member. If I remember. No, I think it's 2002. You're so right, actually. It's 2002. Also, Gold Member starring Tom Cruise, the level where they're commenting more that we need to ape the Mission Impossible thing than James Bond thing, because that's how dead it is. And then you also, just as like a side tangent, at the same time as like Mike Myers is folding culture of uh, all the James Bond culture like laundry, he also like wipes his ass quite literally with Disney princess movies to a level where they're like rethinking their entire game. They're like Atlantis question mark? Treasure Planet question mark? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Weird time for very established franchises and properties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look we're here again <laughs> yeah 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 no kidding for real though yeah well i do like that the broccolis kind of just casually said like yeah we're gonna do a bond movie when we feel like we have a good take on it it's frustrating as a bond fan because you want a new bond film but at the same time um look what happens when you have a non-stop conveyor belt like what's going on with marvel these days well yeah. it'll just be it'll be a situation of they say they rush one out or they wait, and they wait five years or something. That's an exaggerated number. But say they wait five years for a Bond film. In eight years' time, when we're looking back on it, we'll be saying, I'm glad they waited and took their time and really worked on the idea because this is fantastic. Instead of just going, let's just throw one out. They canceled all the like spinoff ideas because they were talking like, now that MGM is sold to Amazon, let's do uh, like an MI6 TV show. And as we saw with both Marvel and then to a certain extent Star Wars, like, the grand experiment of like, does Darth Vader work as an on TV, like streaming service week to week character? And it's like, huh? And it just stops feeling special. It was good yeah. when you were stuck inside for lockdown, but as soon as you got outside and were like, I've got things to do. Uh, Hawkeye is not important to me anymore. I mean, that's yeah. very true. And that's something that like, although the newest Mission Impossible movie is like the 10th highest grossing movie of last year worldwide, it's still a disappointment because of all the COVID costs. Mm -hmm. Um, But that movie really argued like against the whole like streaming idea. Cause could you imagine if like they had Top Gun Maverick or fucking uh, Dead Reckoning on like Paramount plus day and date? Mm -hmm. No, very true. And you know, speaking about franchises, um, this movie had a helping hand from some all-stars of a different franchise that came over, which was uh, Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore were brought in. They have story credit on Mission Impossible 2, and both of them came from the Star Trek world, uh, Next Generation in particular, and had also written Star Trek Generations and Star Trek First Contact. And it was First Contact that got them the gig on Mission Impossible 2. That movie was kind of a surprise breakout hit. And... Um, Scott, do you want to plug anything? Well, I, I will plug something, but I will also just add that I love the idea that Tom Cruise was watching First Contact and just being like, yeah, that bored Queen, mm, something else. He must have, right? He must He's have. He's a pretty controlling producer. He must have seen it. He's mm-hmm. insane about watching TV. I listen, A, if you ever want to hear the whitest tape ever recorded, listen to the commentary to Mission Impossible 3, where it is just J.J. Abrams and uh, Tom Cruise geeking out about Alias. Okay. Okay. It's just like Tom Cruise being like, that guy absolutely crushed it. He was an alias, right? 
episode seven, season two. There you go. You know, and he talked about how he like mainlined Alias for like three days and then called up J.J. Abrams. Well, you you mentioned plugging, and you know we do like to uh, celebrate these big milestone films like the James Bond and the Mission Impossible's with a couple of uh, spy master interviews. So we thought we'd just get the writer. So joining us next week on the show, one half of that team Cam just mentioned, Mr. Brandon Bragger, is on the show to talk all about Mission Impossible Two, and I feel like we probably need one more. And we've spoken about our love for the soundtrack. So joining us is the man who put that soundtrack together, Mr. Mitchell Lieb. It's a bumper-sized interview. We're getting to the nitty-gritty of how Limbiscuit and Metallica got involved. It's uh, some fascinating interviews coming for you next week. If you want to hear the greatest Tom Cruise story ever recorded for Spy Hard's podcast, listen to that Mitchell Lieb interview. Because um, what happens when Tom Cruise meets Fred Durst? You're going to find out. It's incredible. I'm just so relieved that y'all didn't say. And next week we have Dugare Scott coming in. <laughs> John Polson joining yeah. us. <laughs> Followed by John. Yeah. It's a double part. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, uh, Brennan Bragg and Ronald D. Moore um, worked with Tom Cruise to put together like a framework, come up with the action sequences, things like that. I'm going to leave that part kind of vague because Brennan will talk all about his experiences next mm-hmm. week on the show. But since then, Ronald D. Moore has gone on and created the Battlestar Galactica reboot series for all mankind and Outlander. And Brennan Bragg uh, created Star Trek Enterprise and Salem was a writer producer on the Orville and also has been a director and writer on Cosmos. So they both had very big careers post-Mission Impossible 2. But in the kind of interim, so they're putting together the story, Tandiway Newton is hired in between kind of the writing process of the story period and the full screenplay period. And that actually happened because Nicole Kidman had seen her in things and was a big fan and pointed her out to Tom Cruise and said, you should look at her for the female lead of Mission Impossible 2. So that was how she got brought into the fold. And there's actually an interview on the DVD with the screenwriter, Robert Town, who worked on the first film as well, who was brought back to basically put this together into a finished screenplay. And he actually acknowledges that she was part of the package before he even stepped into the uh, into the game. He was also kind of Cruz's like proto Macquarie for a bit because he worked with him on Days of Thunder where they both have like screenplay credits. And then (laughs) which is just crazy. To see, yeah. and then you also the Mission Impossible collaboration, a ton of like uncredited, like did uncredited work on Far and Away and everything. He was really like Cruz's original guy mm. until he found probably the most fruitful, honestly at this point the most fruitful relationship in his career via Valkyrie. Yeah, and I mean Robert Town was a legend for movies like Chinatown and The Parallax View, so oh, yeah. he was a classic. Uh, established hand to bring into these kind of franchises. I thought he threw a little bit of shade, though. I was watching the the documentary on the DVD, and Robert Town says, well, they had action scenes and nothing else. I was there to create the story. And I'm like, oof. Oof. Well, if we want to be accurate, Alfred Hitchcock was there to create the story, and then Robert well, Town just copied and pasted. But uh, yeah. um, it is funny. if you Did you all get a chance to listen to the John Woo commentary? No, I didn't. No. He says sexy and dance probably like 80 times and says dove zero times, which interests me. It's a lot of like, and if you look at Tandy, uh, Tandaway, but you know, at the time it would have said Tandy. 
yeah. Tandy and Tom, they're so sexy and they're looking at each other and they, it's like they're dancing, but with their eyes. And I wanted the cars to dance and I wanted the bullets to dance. And, you know, like it's all dancing. He really like saw it as like, I wanted to make a serious film after Face Off. Yeah. Well, he said he always wanted to make a musical and you can see that elements of that are very alive here. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's not surprising. Um, as for Tandy Way Newton, she's talked about it since that this was actually a very difficult shoot for her. Um, because she said Tom Cruise was very intimidating because he was very intense and things weren't necessarily clicking on set, like in terms of he wasn't happy with the dialogue. He felt that like the script wasn't ever 100% there. Mm -hmm. And she talked about a scenario where they were filming a balcony scene and it just doesn't didn't work. And I'll quote her here. She said, we filmed the entire scene with me being him because believe me, I knew the lines by then and him playing me. And it was the most unhelpful. I can't think of anything less revealing. It just pushed me further into a place of terror and insecurity. It was a real shame. And bless him. And I really do mean bless him because he was trying his damnedest. And she said she ended up calling Jonathan Demi, her director on Beloved, for support during the process. And he basically said, you've got to back yourself. And she said the way she navigated that film going forward was she had to just go alpha against Tom Cruise because that's what he respected and that's what worked for the movie. Mm. But she said that it was a high, high pressure shoot just because of all the moving pieces and him as a producer trying tirelessly to make it work. Well, we've seen it countless times, even with some of our interviews, say like Denise Richards, and she had some big movies going into The World Is Not Enough, but these actors walking into the massive machinery of things like Bond or Mission Impossible, and if you've not got that sort of solid foundation of trusting your art as an actor, you can get completely like uh, steamrolled by someone like Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad she found herself within the process of making this film. Uh, we'll get to performances in a minute, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad she found that. This is in the heat of the divorce, right? This is like Nicole Kidman era. This is this is where he is the biggest movie star in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is, I believe it's his biggest movie to date um, until Maverick. Yeah. Because this is the highest grossing Mission Impossible movie to this day, which is an insane thing to think. I think Fallout beat it. Fallout was the one that beat it. Me. Maybe it's just worldwide. Are you sure? Worldwide. Yeah, worldwide, not domestic. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, domestically, this is in the only country that matters. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is the biggest Mission Impossible movie, which is a wild thing to think. Yeah. So um, some of the other actors I'll touch on. Doug Ray Scott was cast as Wolverine, famously. <laughs> and because this movie's production got pushed further back, uh, he had to drop out of X-Men and thus, Hugh Jackman became a star. Can you imagine? Do you think we still would have gotten Logan? That's my question. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that film happening no. with Doug Ray Scott? Is there even any X-Men sequels with Doug Ray Scott? There are X-Men sequels, I think. But um, I don't know that that character occupies the role he does now with Doug Ray Scott. I don't know if you're getting Deadpool 3 uh, with Doug Ray Scott coming out this year. Uh, I, I don't know about that. To be fair, at least I can I can fairly guarantee that X-Men Origins Wolverine wouldn't be any better. That is 100% accurate. Um, the yeah. question, the sorry, the deeper question is Dougray Scott and Kate and Leopold? Because that's what starts <laughs> the mangled relationship. Oh my god. This is a dark timeline I don't want to travel down. Um, but speaking of X-Men actors, Ian McKellen 
was actually offered a role in the film. It seems like it might have been the scientist role oh. that um, Rad Sebergia plays. Um, cool. It's it's reported two different ways. It's either the Anthony Hopkins role, some people report, and others say it's the scientist role. So it's never been 100% clarified. But basically what happened was, and even Ian McKellen himself doesn't remember, um, they basically gave Ian McKellen a few pages because they were very secretive. And Ian McKellen was like, what do I do with this? It's like four pages. What do you want me to do with this? And they basically told him, no one says no to Tom Cruise. And Ian McKellen said, you know what? I think I will. <laughs> and so he said no and was offered X-Men the next day after turning it down and then offered Gandalf a few days later. What a good week. Yeah, worked out just fine for Ian McKellen. What a weird swapping ground for everybody. Right? I know. Yeah. I know there was something with the Lord of the Rings cinematographers or something along those lines. Uh, I'm not sure if you have this in your research. I could try and find it in my old research. But if I remember correctly, the cinematographer of Lord of the Rings was originally scheduled on it. Then it went over uh. and they ended up getting uh, Jeffrey Kimball, who did uh, did the Tony Scott movies, Top Gun, all that. But yeah, 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 yeah. Just a weird musical chairs. So it's like the Fox X-Men universe owes itself to Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, yeah. it kind of does. And it's funny how like Mission Impossible 2, a movie that where we sit now with Mission Impossible 7, you know, now just recently added to our home video shelves, um, that Mission Impossible 2 is such like a cornerstone of kind of pop culture in that era. Mm -hmm. It really is very important, even if it's not the movie people revisit that much anymore. It does play a pretty critical role, and I was looking at you know the um, the budget on this 125 million, which maybe doesn't sound huge now, but there was massive news stories about Titanic costing 125 million just three years before this movie. So it shows you that like in the year 2000, this was a massive scale production, and yeah, 125 million domestically it did 215.4, international uh, 331. For a worldwide total of 546.4. For comparison, the first Mission Impossible did 457.7. So this was a pretty significant bump up from the uh, first one. And it's interesting to think of its relationship with the, the third one. Because the third one is nearly the movie that tanks the franchise. And they have to kind of reset and refigure it all out. But is generally considered to be the one that if not like sort of starts the restart, at least gets the ball rolling on it, you know, and now sort of builds the blocks for the franchise that we all know and love today. Well, yeah, you say what you want about Christopher McQuarrie and his work with Tom Cruise. We'll get to that when we'll get to those films. But three, in my mind, is always the one that sort of, it's the gold finger of the Mission Impossible films. It gave you the template that they used going forward for better or for worse. Yeah. No, that's very accurate. And I remember walking out of Mission Impossible 3 and going in with fairly low expectations and being like, oh, this franchise feels interesting again. I would argue that this movie is also in its own weird, unique way, part of what, uh, you know, instructs the franchise moving forward, especially like the giant departure in style and tone with John Woo really showed the elasticity of the franchise. Mm. And also the shifting of focus to stunt work. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know, the first Mission Impossible has stunts, but I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, you could say it's Cruz's, like, first, like, pure action movie, but I would 
I would say more this is more what I would think of as like the template moving forward for what a Tom Cruise action movie is, where like the teaser is the rock climbing scene. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no like there are stunts in the first movie, but they're done on green screen. No, it's yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting little thing. And those stunts connected with people because Mission Impossible 2 was the number one film at the worldwide box office in the year 2000. Uh, it was actually interesting. Worldwide, it was number one. Domestically, number one was actually How the Grinch uh, Stole Christmas, mm-hmm. the Ron Howard film with Jim Carrey. Um, but yeah, the worldwide audiences were much more into Mission Impossible 2 because number two was Gladiator and number three was Castaway. So Grinch did not uh, score in that top three worldwide. It's actually funny because you know, we've been doing this for a long time now, and it's not very often that when you say, oh, the top three films of the year, that the film we're talking about is actually number one. Yeah. That's actually really rare for a spy movie to be getting that sort of money. Or maybe it just means the rest of 2000 was a really low year. I don't know. I don't think it's a low year. I think it's also just like that is, as Nathan said, like Tom Cruise at full wattage as a movie star uh, it had a package that was very well marketed, and I think it was the biggest movie of that summer. Like, I think um, there was no other movie that was standing, I think, opposite. Gladiator was obviously a big hit, but Gladiator did not go into the summer with everyone going, here's the Oscar winner for Best Picture that is going to become a favorite. Gladiator moving into it, like, people were like, is this a sure thing? Like, you know, we got Russell Crowe, I guess, hot off the insider, but it's not like people were like, <laughs> oh, that's my action star. You know, and it's not like Sword and Sandals epics where really it's it's Cruz's 96 where he has both Jerry Maguire and uh, Mission Impossible where it's like he's fucking hot shit. And then he doesn't act for a while. And then he releases these two very interesting and very great films, Magnolia and uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Then he does this movie, which almost feels like an outlier to follow it up with Vanilla Sky, which performed like a Mission Impossible movie. This very strange art film by Cameron Crowe, which is a weird sentence to say, uh, <laughs> that has one of the most like expensive shots ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's strange. It's also the era that I think like post this, Tom Cruise cannot be sexual on screen ever again. I was uncomfortable in this movie, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Totally, totally. But like, it's not one of those things where Tom Cruise has been like asexual in other movies beforehand like risky business is a sex comedy mm-hmm. it's like if michael mann directed a sex comedy but it's fucking great and then you know he's fucking all throughout the 80s and 90s it isn't until you do the one-two punch of eyes wide shut and magnolia and then you try to have him loop over to mission impossible 2 where he's doing james bond people are like "Ooh, no thank you and then vanilla <laughs> sky where they're also like no thank you and then it's like Tom Cruise is completely asexual on screen. If he has a sex scene, it's either going to be in a movie you don't remember, which is uh, American Made, where he has a high-gravity, like, zero-gravity sex scene. Um, The same year that he has a zero-gravity scene in The Mummy, actually, which is funny. Um, Weird outlier year in his career. And then, you know, you get Rock of Ages, which is another movie that people try to forget. And then... Uh, what's the other one that I was like, oh yeah, and then in Top Gun Maverick, he has like a Hallmark Christmas movie sex scene where it looks like he's giving 
where he's telling uh, Jennifer Connelly like the funniest joke she's ever heard. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I, I don't even mean this as like I'm not even dragging him. I just think it's just an interesting turning point because by Mission Impossible, two people are like ooh, yeah. And I remember in the Mummy, there was like multiple scenes of like characters talking about his virility, yeah, uh, and being like he's unbelievable in bed, and the whole audience is like laughing their heads off at it. It was so weird. Well, it it's one of my favorite things in movies where they like partner like a movie star with somebody else that is like against their type, where it's like Jake Johnson and Tom Cruise are best friends. Yeah, which is just funny to me and then like all throughout it, he's talking to the girl from malignant uh annabelle wallace and it's just like did i have sex with you i can't remember maybe it was the <laughs> previous day when i was having and it's like we spent five days together it's like that movie is like if chris pratt's career swapped with tom cruise's career in an alternate universe yeah uh, he, Tom Cruise has had a fascinating journey. Um, I'll just give a couple of final notes to wrap up the behind the scenes here. I'm just going to jump in before you continue, Cam. Oh, firstly, this this episode already has my favorite line of the year when Cam says Tom Cruise's well marketed package. <laughs> You're welcome. That's a marvelous thing. I'll be quoting that again in the future. And the other thing is, I mean, I we've already made some uh, comments about Tom Cruise in the show in the past for for certain things that he's done. Uh, I knew that we would never be going on his Christmas cake list, but now we've definitely sent it home. This is never happening for us. No, no, that's very true. I, I still, I still believe in it, guys. You, you think so? <laughs> okay, there's hope. There's hope. I believe in it for me, and I believe in it for you. We'll get on that list. I'm not even making Doug Ray Scott's Christmas cake list. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, a couple of final notes here. Uh, this was peak John Woo. After this, he would do movies like Wind Talkers, Paycheck, and then go back to Chinese uh, productions for a long time. He recently put out Silent Night at the end of 2023, uh, which didn't perform particularly well. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to as soon as it basically hits streaming. I have only heard that it is quite poor. That's what I've heard as well. Um, but I have fingers crossed. Which is sad to hear because you're like, how could it go wrong? I know. I There's know. literally no dialogue. There's only gunshots and fights. I don't know. And as I said, Mission Impossible 2 was the, uh, you know, wore the crown as the box office champion worldwide of 2000. But the Razzies were out for it. They nominated uh, Tendiwe Newton for Worst Supporting Actress. Rude. Which she lost to Kelly Preston for Battlefield Earth. And they also nominated Mission Impossible 2 for Worst Remake or Sequel, which it lost to Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, uh, I think deservedly. <laughs> I agree, deservedly. I'd also argue kind of rude. I, I think that movie's a little fascinating. I think it's too. it was a big target that they could take shots at. Well, the Razzies always goes for an easy target. Um, mm -hmm. Just look at Sharon Stone's entire Razzies nomination history. It's like, she gave me a boner. Here's your nomination. Yeah. Yeah, I think they nominated her for Casino, even, which was, like, insane. Yeah, what the fuck? Um, but we talked about the soundtrack. The American Music Awards gave it the top soundtrack of the year. And the Critics' Choice Awards gave it the best score for Hans Zimmer. I'll have more to say about that later. I like the score. Okay, well, we'll talk about that later. I like all the Mission Impossible scores, actually. I don't think there's a bad one of the bunch. Cam's just uh, teased his thoughts on one, so I'll, I'll bring us back to that in a bit. But uh, I'm curious. We need to get our gun off. 
and talk about Mission Impossible 2. It's about time. Their sand gun? Well, <laughs> yeah. Pick up the sand gun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm begging for it. No, we need to talk about this film. It's, it's, it's a film you've already spoken about before on Mission Impossible. I've avoided talking about this one online too much because I wanted to save my thoughts. But Nathan, you're our guest. You're first. What do you think of Mission Impossible 2? It's watchable. No, I mean... It, <laughs> Three stars! That's what, that's what Tom Cruise wanted for that $125 million budget. It's watchable. <laughs> I would say it's a 5 out of 10. You know, it's, a, it's yeah. a very watchable, very pretty movie. It opens... I wouldn't argue strong, but it opens propulsive. You're just like, this movie has no chill. And then it just sort of lies there for a while until we get to the... I mean, it looks gorgeous. It still looks like a perfume commercial or an Oakley's ad or whatever. And then it gets to the, like, lab shootout. And then you're like, holy shit, my, my like, I'm getting my John Woo fix. I'm feeling it. Like, it's, it's in my bones and everything. And then uh, it lies there for a little bit. And then it continues to... Um, you know, it, it it goes out strong, which most of the Mission Impossible movies can be accused of not doing up until mm-hmm. Fallout. Like, if the last 30 minutes of Mission Impossible 2 were the whole movie, I'd be, like, probably trying to say four stars, you know, out of five and all that. Like, I'd just be, like, losing my mind over it. But it does get really tiresome for a bit. It's still watchable, but it, it's pretty tiresome. Dugray Scott is, like, a charisma black hole. <laughs> um the sexual chemistry between Tandaway Newton and Tom Cruise is non-existent and he, his horniness is off-putting in this movie. <laughs> it made me sick. Yeah. I mean that, it's just the bathtub scene is something else, isn't it? Like that yeah, is it's, it's not quite Henry Cavill and Amy Adams in the bathtub in Batman versus Superman where you're just like is he going to kill her? <laughs> but it's it's not too far off. Um, it's, I have a lot of issues with that whole scene because not only is it awkward to look at, but then like John Woo is doing cleavage cam shots throughout. Oh, yeah. And you're like, this is just all sorts of weird, all piling up together as a massive car wreck. Um, I will say my two big takes on it, having lived with it for this long. Um, a lot of people say it truly breaks the formula of Mission Impossible movies. I kind of disagree. Um, just having seen so many episodes of the old show, there are episodes where they will just have one member of the team recruit an outside person, usually a girl who has some specialist, uh, Haley Atwell, if you will, a Rebecca Ferguson, or a Tandaway Newton. But usually they're given something to do outside of fuck the bad guy. Yeah. And fucking the bad guy seems to be like, they're like, yeah, she's a cat burglar. <laughs> proceeds to use none of those skills for the rest of the movie. Yeah, excellent point, yeah. Unless smuggling a virus inside of herself is burgling. And then the other thing, I, I like that Christopher McQuarrie has kind of been able to retrofit this with Ethan Hunt's psyche, where he is uh, he's defined by how he doesn't want to lose anybody in the team moving forward. And you could almost take this as like his the first Mission Impossible... He loses a team. He's so broken up by it. He has to make another team out of necessity. And this, he's kind of like a rogue, I don't play by the rules gun because he's just going through just an emotional crisis right now. He's in his slicked back hair, his Oakley era, his like, I'm going to climb this 
mountain and I don't care if I die, even if it has nothing to do with the mission. <laughs> and if you're being super generous, it actually does work in with the grand narrative of these very weirdly disconnected films that Macquarie has managed to sort of wrangle all together. Yeah. But yeah, those are my two takes. Okay. Well, uh, so you it feels like you're sort of coming in the middle. I, I know where I'm sitting on this, which I'll get to. I want to see what Cam has to say. Go for it. I don't know that I'm that far away from where Nathan is. Um, I find that this film, I'm engaged when it starts. Mm-hmm. When I see that incredible mountain climbing, for example, I am blown away. And I almost feel like it's wasting that sequence by just playing credits over top of it to kind of dippy pop music. Sure. I'm like, really? Like, this is absolutely incredible vertigo inducing material like my stomach was actually dropping when i was watching that sequence just the other night and that really speaks to how absolutely beautiful it is and how effectively it is staged and shot and i'm like okay i am on board and i like the whole notorious setup in theory uh it's something we haven't really seen to tackle like an effort uh, an actual alfred hitchcock plot in a major franchise movie like this. We've seen Hitchcock riffs in like From Russia with Love, mm-hmm. but not like this, where it's very specifically trying to do Notorious. And I find that interesting, but the chemistry between the two leads is off. And <sighs> Doug Ray Scott is a real problem for me, a huge problem, like a problem that cannot be overcome with Mission Impossible 2. And I don't like to take shots at actors usually because they are victims of, you know, the script, the direction. You know, Tandy Way Newton has talked about how awkward that set was Mm -hmm. at certain times in terms of giving a performance. So like I have a lot of sympathy, but they established early on that the Sean Ambrose character is someone who has doubled Ethan Hunt in the past. You have like a mirror scenario here, like the dark mirror character. And John Woo loves that sort of thing in his movies, uses it all the time. It's one of his go-tos. And to me, you needed a star or an actor who has charisma, who you see as a threat and is someone that is almost vying for the screen with Tom Cruise. Like someone that Tom Cruise sees a opponent that actually threatens him. Sean Ambrose is not only not that, he's not charismatic at all. And he mostly just like leers at people a lot and gives kind of weird stares. I don't mean to side thread this, but who, sh- who would you cast? Like, I'm just trying to think well, like, cause it's the year 2000. I mean, if I, if I can make face off and have, John Travolta versus Nick Cage. There's got to be an actor out there at that point in time that would fit there. Well, that's out ham. That's not out movie star. Well, they are big movie stars, though. Oh, yeah, but they're they're a ham sandwich. Like, that's a ham wars movie. That's like Woody Harrelson versus Tom Hardy in Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. Does anyone jump to your mind? That's what I'm trying to think. Because it's not Dugare Scott. It's certainly not. What about Russell Crowe? Russell Crowe, who'd done Virtuosity a few years before... Steel scenes. Uh, you know what? Well, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a mirror for him. Denzel? Not a mirror, but it is a movie star. Like, those two yeah. going against each other would be compelling. And to me, the problem is that not only is Sean Ambrose completely lacking in the chemistry department mm-hmm. uh, with Tendi Way Noon, but also has no charisma, he's also dumb as a post. Everything he does throughout this movie is not the way he wanted it to go. He's constantly like, oh, that can happen? Oh, I didn't understand what would happen with these virus elements that, you know, this person has this, this person has that. He's a character who's always behind the eight ball. So how is he a threat? It feels like more of a pawn character who's also your primary villain. 
And it just does not work for me. And when you get to that middle section, which is weirdly low on action for a John Woo movie, it just drags. And it isn't until, as Nathan said, like you get to those big shootouts at the end and the motorcycle sequence that I go, this is John Woo, 100% engaged, doing what he does best. I don't think he does the slow burn romantic melodrama well at all. And when the movie plays to his strengths, that's when it comes to life. I totally get that. And I will add in terms of, you know, dumping on Doug Ray for a second, or at least Sean Ambrose. He is the dumbest spy I've ever seen in my life because the guy is meant to be off the grid laying low and he has the most ostentatious house in Sydney Harbour you could <laughs> actually have. I just think, like, is this guy trying to be found? I guess. So I got two answers for you because I just was, like, looking through, like, the highest possible box office yeah. stars. Mm. Leonardo DiCaprio could match Cruz's intensity. I think he might be a little too young, though. Yeah, too young looking, especially at that point. Yep, yep. Uh, the best counter that I can find, and I hate to say it because he's just become such an uninteresting, drab human being and piece of shit, uh, but Johnny Depp would probably be your best guy. Pre-Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, he... Can out-character actor him. Can be that intense, but also can be relaxed enough to like really fuck him over. He would also be, Johnny Depp, especially at that period, would also be a very interesting romantic opponent. Yeah. yeah. Because Johnny Depp is more charming. Like, you would buy that Tendiwe Noon might be perhaps drawn back to Johnny Depp. Like, you might have some tension there. Versus, like, when you see Doug Ray Scott and her together, you're like, she wants out. Out. Like, there's that scene where he gets her to try on the dress. Yeah. And then he's just, like, drooling over himself really awkwardly and i'm like this is uncomfortable to watch well he can't even bring that home he doesn't actually tell her to put it on he says do it later so he doesn't even get to see the show he's just like uh he doesn't know what to do with it he's actually like he's a dog that's caught the car yeah yeah i think i think that might be the best possible counter i can't think of anybody else who could possibly match it he's the only person who's kind of around that same level of like if he's in a movie it's priority watching at that time okay folks You've been listening you've been listening to about an hour of chat on Mission Impossible 2 and not a single person has come to its aid. Well, don't worry. Okay. I am emerging from the fire in slow motion followed by doves on a motorcycle. I am here to save this film. First Operation Fortune, know this. <laughs> I am coming for you. I will save you, Broken Toys. Probably two good plane movies too. Stop it. Let's talk about the good stuff. Okay, this film is... One of the problems with Mission Impossible 1, the people who spoke about at the time, I don't have a problem with it now, but I see why it was a problem, was the fact it was perhaps a bit too complex for people. It was maybe a bit too heady, uh, a bit too thought-provoking, it was a bit too much to take in, hard to follow. They've got rid of all that. This film isn't hard to crack. It is a very easy nut to crack. In fact, the nut falls wide open. And so you've got that. It's also based on my favorite spy film of all time, or at least one of them, which is Notorious. So you've got that running for it too. The structure is already there. You've got a good film in your bones. You put in Tom Cruise at the head of, you know, at the top of his game, as we said. You put in some fantastic stunt, stunt sequences that still stick out if you do a montage of stunts from Mission Impossible films. You talk about that knife falling into the eye. You talk about the uh, the motorcycle jousting. You talk about the rock climbing. There are a lot of memorable moments of this film. That isn't to say it's perfect. It really isn't perfect. 
but I appreciate that it is going for more of an action film than a heady spy drama that the first one did. This is bowling it right down the middle of the average James Bond film, like Nathan said earlier. It is the popcorn action thriller that Mission Impossible probably was going to become, and it did. It's it learning its lessons from Brian De Palma and moving on with John Woo. And I have to say, going back to it and putting aside my nostalgia, because that, that gets it a star from me anyway, having all that nostalgia built into it. It has its problems. Doug Ray Scott is a problem. The chemistry is a problem. The middle section is a problem. But it is a fun film with crazy wacky moments that you can go back to and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. And so I would actually say of the Mission Impossible films we've tackled so far on the show, this isn't the worst. You like uh, the first one less than this one? I was talking about Dead Reckoning. See, I was kind of in the same boat as you, so I'll... I'll... I'll reach across the aisle. He's saying Dead Reckoning is inferior to Mission Impossible 2. Oh. Mm-hmm. Jesus, man. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> and Nathan's left the show, everyone. He's gone. He's, uh, yeah, he's packed I up think, his tent. I think the entity is actually Scott right now. <laughs> maybe I was just so let down by Dead Reckoning. Who knows? But uh, part yeah, two... Yeah, maybe you saw Sound of Freedom that week instead. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Oh I'm boy. sorry. A movie that the entity is credited as director of. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about the stuff that works in Mission Impossible Two. I'm going to throw it to you, Nathan, as its as its biggest cheerleader. Why don't you take us in? Um, stuff that works in Mission Impossible Two. Uh, two motorcycles flying into the air at each other. Uh, gun that comes out of the sand. Uh, knife to the eye. Motorcycle chase. Um, Ving Rhames always works. Yeah. Uh, flamenco dancing. I, I like it. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those where like the the front half, you're like, oh, this is going to be a globe trotting spy movie. And then it just like decides like, okay, we're only in Australia. Yeah, I quite like Australia. We're going to stay here. I've been there. It is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's true to the, it's true to the eighties mission impossible series, which was only shot in Australia. Um, for tax reasons. Anyways, but, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoy that about it. I think the last third is just, like, pure John Woo, like, kinetic action. I think Cruz's physicality is incredible. Not a lot of actors can do mm -hmm. John Woo's action, and he, he approaches it with great aplomb. The acting portion of it, not so much. He feels pretty lost and adrift. It's very, uh, oblivion level Tom Cruise performance where you're just like, where, where are you, man? Like, what's going on here? It does seem like he's struggling in a way that he isn't in Dead Reckoning because Dead Reckoning is much more of almost like a silent film, which is often what John Woo is also trying to do. But it seems like John Woo has an approach to like melodrama that when it clicks, it really, really works in his movies. But I think Tom Cruise struggles against it here and it just... It's a it's an odd pairing because when I watch Tom Cruise do the John Woo action, I'm like, this is a perfect pairing. Like, I would have loved to have seen these guys do an original film together. They talked about doing, like, a heist movie. Yeah. Yeah. But then when I see, like, the dramatic stuff. I also think Brendan Gleeson is pretty good. That's just, an, I'm just throwing, like, <laughs> when's he bad? Well, let's, let's, um... Let's unpack something that you just said there, which I think the, the thing you led us off with was, like, set pieces, right? Some of the memorable stuff in this film. 
I whilst we have spoken about how the middle is a bit saggy and uh, a bit icky and some other problems I'm sure we'll get to. I I would argue this film has more memorable moments. I mean, just talking so far, the Mission Impossible one. No. No. I think they've got. I no. 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 Not at all. But more than three, I would say more memorable memorable moments than three. Oh, definitely oh, more yeah. than three. Yeah. Although three, okay. I think people kind of underrate the Vatican heist. I think that's just like an incredibly sturdy, solid portion of that movie. Yeah. And ha- like does like a great movie magic trick, but definitely better set pieces than three. Um, but not more than one. I mean, Langley is like one of the set pieces of the '90s. I think what I'm doing is com- like putting little segments of that car, sort of the motorcycle stuff at the end, into one. Like I'm spreading it out into different things, but it is just one giant set piece, I suppose, if you break it down. Yeah. The knife thing is part of it all, so maybe that's why I'm losing it there. Maybe you are right. Maybe one wins that one, but the lab break-in is fun. Yeah, yeah. There's some good John Woo stuff, but it's so derivative of Langley. I, I thought that I actually wrote that down too in my notes, and then I thought the gun fight during that is basically just the Matrix. Yeah, good point, actually. And yes, yeah. yes, but I think it's it's more classic Woo than it is the Matrix. Well, it's just like him doing cartwheel shooting and the, the walls exploding, which feels very like the lobby shootout in Matrix. It does, but also the Matrix is drawing on John Woo a lot. Yeah, so, it's like, uh, you know. Uh. Yeah, snake eating its tail. Yeah, but you go what's in in the mind's eye at the time, and the Matrix had come out like a year before, so that, that yeah. that's kind of like in the conversation. Whereas I I don't know. that's just my stance on it. But I think the set pieces are very successful in this film. I think people should probably revisit it just for those alone. Cam, a like you want to bring up? Well, I just want to say, yeah, the motorcycle chase at the end is incredible, and it's like you want a movie like this to end that way where you are just on the edge of your seat for a propulsive action scene like you are with fallout and i don't think this is as good a movie as fallout by any stretch of the imagination but it knows how to end yeah like it doesn't belabor its ending it gives you an incredible incredible action scene and you know nathan mentioned the knife to the eye incredible moment that's all i asked for with my mission impossibles is go out on a high this one does so when it's clicking there, that's when it works for me. The only moment I'll say, though, in a set piece where I kind of rolled my eyes, I don't care about the dubs. Dubs are fine with me. You know what? It's a fine. trope of John Woo filmmaking, and I am here for it. It's the moment where Tom Cruise does the guile flash kick <laughs> that I was like, come on, guys. That's a little too much. A little too much. Oh, you know what's a really great moment? Uh, when when the guy, when it uh, Richard Roxburgh has the mask over him of Tom Cruise and the Hans Zimmer score kicks in. Well. Yeah, hold up. Dun, 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 dun. Metal guitar. It's fucking sick. Great shit. Cam is holding back on that score. But, okay, wait for that, Cam. But come on, give us a like. Okay, so, um, I mean, the set pieces are, to me, what makes the movie work. But I want to just, like, say that, like, when the movie can find its tension... It can really work. And I wish it had more examples of this, but I want to just point out a sequence, which is the horse race sequence, where Tendiway Newton has to steal the you know, the um, camera card from Doug Ray Scott, get it to Tom Cruise, and then get it back. Mm-hmm. There is so much tension in that sequence. That has the kind of Hitchcockian vibe I think they are going for. And that moment where she slips it back into Doug Ray Scott's pocket, and you see that he acknowledges that that's not right like he's aware something's wrong and then in the next scene says you know my right pocket indicating that he knew exactly which pocket it was in like that's the kind of sequences in this movie dramatically that work 
I wish the movie had more of them because it's very clear that John Woo is capable of delivering them. Mm-hmm. It just seems that he's falling too much into romantic melodrama instead of playing to his strengths, which is really well-crafted sequences built around tension. If this movie had more of things like that, I think it could really work. And I, I really was kind of annoyed that we didn't have more moments like that or even the Brendan Gleeson being gassed and waking up in the um, hotel room or not hotel room hospital room hooked up to all the machines I mean that's classic Mission Impossible right there yeah that stuff is where it comes to life for me dramatically so I think that's kind of a frustration for me but those are my, my big like dramatic sequences yeah, I think the horse race stuff is great. I mean, it is mostly lifted from Notorious. Yeah. Almost yeah. shot for shot at times. But that's that's fine. You're, you're paying homage to a great. It's a good way to go. If you're going to copy, copy the best. And so I, I love the horse race scene. I mean, in terms of other bits and bobs like that. Um, yeah, I quite, I don't, I don't much love the airplane at the start. Uh, I feel like that's a bit much, but I do love the rock climbing. I just think that's incredible. An incredible feat. And you hadn't really seen him, like, like Nathan said, you hadn't seen him be physical like that before. Because you can tell that's Tom climbing a mountain. Although what it what it doesn't have that the Burj Khalifa and the rock climbing and Fallout has is narrative function outside sure. of he's a bad boy. And that's it. Mm. But he is a bad boy, though. But he is a bad boy uh, all throughout the... Look at that hair. <laughs> Look at that hair. I I had a note about the plane sequence, which is when Tom Cruise is on the plane, right? And it's Mm. made to look like Tom Cruise. Yeah. And then reveals himself to be Doug Ray Scott. I made a note that says, most disappointing mask reveal ever. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's, isn't there one where he pulls off a mask and then it pulls off another mask and then, you know. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of masks going on in the back half of this movie without ever showing anyone using a mask maker. Well, it kind of. I believe McCore even talked about this. The, the limit of how many times you can do a mask gag is three. Oh, okay. After four, you've completely lost the audience. It doesn't matter what happens anymore. Well, there's no trust at that point. Like, who is who? It doesn't. Everyone's just going to be someone else. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I've seen Mission Impossible episodes that have completely crumbled because of that. Because if you do four mask pulls in one episode, like, what even is the world? Uh, I do think... If one of the biggest issues with this movie, and I feel like we're kind of dancing around it, is like all the American John Woo movies up to this point are very goofy, but with intentional goofiness. I mean, Jean Claude Van Damme knocks out a snake in Hard Target. <laughs> Face Off is one of the most preposterous movies ever made. Yeah. Fucking just turn to John Travolta's performance in Broken Arrow. He even did this pilot, this like Dolph Lundgren movie. I want to call it like Whiteout or something about a a man who has a fear of the color white. So like it's Dolph Lundgren like (laughs) freaking out over milk. Just these goofy premises (laughs) to do this very classical Hitchcockian romantic spy movie is just such an ill fit for John Woo at this point in time. And don't get me wrong. It seems like he really wants to do it, but he's just not calibrated to it. Yeah, and you look at where he would go after this. Like, uh, Wind Talkers is played very straight, uh, dramatically, and people don't really respond to it. And then Paycheck is also not over the top insane either, and that was a real box office bomb for him as well. Yeah. Well, before I unleash uh, the hounds in the dislike section, I just want to talk about uh, the soundtrack, not the score. Cam, calm down. It's a, it's a, it's a relic. 
in many ways, but it is a moment in time for a lot of people, especially people around our age who love that kind of music. And it's something I still listen to from time to time. And watching this film just reminded me of that feeling of the time. It's a very well put together soundtrack. Obviously, we'll speak to Mitchell Lieb next week about it. You'll hear all about the making of that. But in terms of likes, I just have to put my hands up and say I love, love, love this soundtrack. I honestly wish they'd played it up more in the movie because it's a couple songs in the end credits and that's it. Yeah. No, it's weird that Metallica doesn't appear till the end. Like, you'd think that would be perfect for the rock climbing or something. Even if it's just an instrumental version. Yeah. I'll give some love to the score before you shit on it, Cam. Uh, I like the score <laughs> quite a bit. I like it when Lisa Gerard and Hans Zimmer work together. Is this their best collaboration from this year? God, no. Uh, Gladiator is just amazing. But, you know, during the, the fight, when you get the Lisa Gerard kicking in and the last of the Mohicans moment, like, you know, it... It works, and then that moment with the like the ripping guitar towards the back half is like the ideal version of this movie. What audiences listening at home won't have is uh, the vision of Cam's face just slowly like getting sadder and sadder as Nathan was saying that <laughs> sentence. So I want to I, I want to like freeze this moment in time and throw us over to the dislikes so he can talk about it. But my final like before we go, as a man that's follically challenged, anytime Tom Cruise has long hair. Gets an up from me. Okay, okay. For a second, I thought you said phallically challenged. (laughs) I am phallically and follically challenged. (laughs) I have all the F challenges. Oh, you see, I thought you were going to shout out Ving Rhames because he also doesn't have hair. I thought you were going to, like, champion him in that moment. That's interesting. No, but you see, like, I don't see myself as the man in the van. I see myself as Ethan Hunt out there doing the mission, not uh, computering the mission. So... Okay, maybe this can go to dislikes. It's not necessarily a dislike. It's more of a, a curiosity. Um, what's Ving Rhames' like bit in this movie? Because like he comes through and he's like talking about his Gucci shoes and he's wearing this like three hundred million dollar outfit or whatever. Like, is his bit now that he's like a dandy? Because that's not what I saw Luther being. Like, you know, he steps in shit. And he's like, oh, you really think this is funny, Ethan? These are my $300 Gucci shoes. As they're introducing, like, the Luther that we all know. Um, I don't know, but that also speaks to how they're writing Ethan Hunt at this point as well. Like, it doesn't... It's funny because, like, Tom Cruise said he saw this as a complete standalone film. It's almost like they rebooted the characters as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said. It's like, uh, you know, they, they cast a new actress, Ethan Hunt. With much much better hair. And then you watch Dead Reckoning Part 1 and, like, Luther is, like, the soul of the group. Like, talking to, you know, Haley Atwell about what it all means and the journey they need to go on together. And I'm like, this is definitely not the Luther of Mission Impossible 2. Well, I think it's a better use of Ving Rhames anyway because he actually has some range. So just sticking him in a van doing cyber talk is not the best thing he could be doing. No, not at all. I agree. I did like that the the dead reckoning was so meta about like simon Pegg and him fighting over like who is the better hacker yeah uh and, and also to reposition the hackers as like the only defense against ai anyways dead reckoning a much better film uh i don't know what you're on scott or i'm sorry the entity diet coke we interrupt this program to bring you a special report red alert spy hards we are shaking things up over on the Patreon page. That's right, we are launching an exclusive new show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents, like Jack Bauer, George Smiley, and beyond. 
And don't forget, every month you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy movies. But Cam, tell the people what we have coming up next. Now's the time to catch up with our January offerings, reviews of Batman Begins and the Ian Fleming biopic GoldenEye, plus the debrief where we looked at The Beekeeper, Slow Horses, and the Oscar nominations. So don't get left out in the cold. Help support your favorite spy movie podcast and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, let's get back to the spy jinx. Well, let's talk about dislikes. And I know you two have been chomping at the bit to tuck into this film. Nathan, you first. Something you dislike about the film. Really that middle portion. The middle portion where it's really boring, the scenes between Duggaray Scott and Tandaway Newton, uh, the scenes between Tom Cruise and Tandaway Newton. Um, I, I can't even say that it's a dislike, but I think all the, uh, the scenes between Anthony Hopkins and Tom Cruise are just kind of snooze fests. They feel like reshoots or something. Like they're just yeah. the, they, they are like pickups at the end. There was no they're not on set with anyone else. It's just in a room somewhere. I love the line. Yeah. I love the line where like Anthony Hopkins says, you know The trailer should, line. Yeah, the, the trailer line. The difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh I think that's a great line. I do like Anthony Hopkins because you know, we were talking about movie stars in a room with Tom Cruise, who can hold their own? Anthony Hopkins can. And I think he's a very uh, solid choice to be kind of the the boss of Ethan Hunt in this movie. But uh, yeah, it does feel like they just kind of injected them into the movie. I agree. Yeah, and also it's where they're also playing bits with the first film where there's like a whole reference to the cappuccino machine. Because I guess maybe that tested well the first time they screened Mission Impossible 1. He's just like, can we do cappuccino machine? Because what is this slug? <laughs> Uh, this sludge then the next one he's like i have a cappuccino machine and i'm just like was that really like the audience is supposed to fucking cheer after that moment (laughs) and then (laughs) the other one is the uh all the weirdly sexist things that he says i mean this movie is pretty sexist i think john woo is kind of unconsciously sexist in a lot of his movies especially his chinese films um but like the go to bed with a man and lie to him. That's all a woman ever does. Like that line is just Mm. like, I'm like, did I turn on a Connery Bond movie? It's so weird. There's actually a bit about that in the documentary with Robert Town talking about it and him saying actually like on, you know, this would have been recorded right around the time of the movie. Him saying, we've given his character a lot of politically incorrect things to say. And we really think it's going to provoke the audience. So I'm like, that's, interesting that like right up front the screenwriters like we know that we're giving him offensive lines and i'm like okay they were obviously trying for something i don't know that it connects in this kind of like <laughs> lunk-headed action movie yeah is it meant to make you sort of like dislike power and it's tom cruise sort of sticking it to the man probably like kind of trying to show that there's no humanity in how um you know, Anthony Hopkins sees the Tandy Way Newton character, whereas Tom Cruise does. So it probably is that contrast, kind of the way when you watch Notorious, um, you know, Cary Grant is the one who is very emotionally connected to um, Ingrid Bergman's character, but his superiors aren't. They don't care. 
Well, they talk about her in a very dismissive tone as well. Like, she's just disposable fodder to get to their outcome. Yeah. yeah. I also think mm. the the ending ending is quite poor as well. Just the, hey, we're going to meet you at a museum. She has her freedom. We walk off into the Sydney, Shore, the Sydney Shores, you know? Let's get lost. Yeah, I'm... It's a it's a perplexing movie. Uh, you say lunk-headed action movie, and in my brain I'm like, yeah, it, it certainly is. But also, a lunk-headed action movie should not have like a full hour that's just like dramatically inert. That is 100% true. I say a whole hour. It's actually probably 30 minutes of the movie, but it feels like an hour. Like Fallout, it, Fallout and Dead Reckoning are almost an hour longer than this and feel about an hour shorter, in my opinion. And also, lunk-headed action movies aren't typically based on Notorious. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So, like, this movie has higher aspirations. But I guess when we – and maybe it's uh, – maybe I'm incorrect in looking at it that way. But it's just, like, when you look at what Mission Impossible kind of exists as in the culture and the way we consider it as kind of the dumb action movie of the Mission Impossible franchise, even though it has these higher artistic aims and allusions to classic movies – it's somehow the packaging, Limp Biscuit, the year 2000, the CG. Oh, this is the most dated movie ever. Yeah. This is aged like milk. And so it now feels like it is the lunk-headed action movie, which I don't know that that was what they were trying to create in the year 1999 or 98 when they're putting it together. Well, that's the thing. They said when they were making the first one, they want them all to feel different from each other, different directors, different tone. And they did succeed with this. It does necessarily, not to everyone's uh, you know enjoyment, necessarily but it does feel very different from its predecessor but for the better of the franchise i would say arguably if we're just viewing this as a franchise making this such a swerve with woo really allows these movies to flourish later on yeah i agree and actually you know what it's funny because mission impossible 2 in some ways gives me everything i wanted from this franchise which is bringing in auteur directors each time and having them leave their stamp on what mission impossible could be that's what i really liked with the palma and then they would break away with that when you get into, you know, four or five, et cetera. Uh, well, four, Brad Bird is actually, that's not fair. No, Brad Bird does have much more. Yeah. And I think McQuarrie's been smart to feel like a different director each time. I agree. In terms of the overall quality of the movies, 100%. But I do like the idea of the auteur director kind of remolding the franchise each time. So in a way, giving me a John Woo Mission Impossible movie is what I want because I had a Brian De Palma one. Now give me, you know, they were talking about like a David Fincher third one. Like, would have loved to have seen something like that as well. Do you know what that movie was supposed to be about? Um, What was it? I, I've heard it and I'm forgetting in the moment. The whole idea was like, you're going to see these like, these people in like tactical outfits, like smuggling body parts in right. South Africa. And then... You remove the face and it's Tom Cruise and he's doing it and that's your hero. And then like his big, the big contention between both of them, apparently, according to any research that I've done on that, is that uh, he wanted to not have the theme because the theme is of a TV show and not for a movie. And that's usually been like a weird sticking point for a lot of directors is like, I don't want to use that theme. And Tom Cruise will be like, well, here's the door. I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. I mean, it does make sense. You can't have it without the theme. Yeah, I'm I'm for that. Much as I like the music stuff, I mean, we'll hear some stories about Tom Cruise and music and the Mitchell Liebitz, if you trust me. I'm, a, I'm excited uh, to hear it. It's a it, it's a it's a big one. Uh, Cam dislikes. Well, 
I have to talk about it now. The score for this movie drives me absolutely crazy. And I love Hans Zimmer. I think it's not even like it's, well, this is a, you know, older Hans Zimmer score. All scores age. You know, a lot of his older work is incredible. I love the True Romance score. I love, you know, the Lion King score. A lot of things he's doing around this era. Crimson Tide. This score, and not just the score, but the song choices as well. You know, whether it's the pop song over the mountain climbing, but like the goofy score they're playing during the very GoldenEye-like car chase he has off the top with Tandy Wayne Noon, which feels very Bon Zenya. Mm-hmm. All these different times they're like throwing in like tap music during that car sequence. None of it works for me. The Mission Impossible theme works because it will always work. You could play that over Ethan Hunt walking across a hotel lobby like Bond and, you know, <laughs> the original Dr. No. But Okay. But is it better or worse than Eric Sarah's score to Goldeneye? Ooh. Oh, that's an excellent question. Okay, I'll say this much. Eric Serra's score is atrocious. Yes. However, however, I think it's actually better for two reasons. Number one, that sort of industrial sound he creates for Goldeneye that obviously plays a huge role in the video game as well. I think it's very effective and a good stamp, you know, in terms of the music for that movie. Also, the score at the end action sequence when you have the Goldeneye satellite burning up in the atmosphere and like the music is building and building, that stuff's really effective. I think in terms of the Hans Zimmer score, of course I'm going to get points because he really he nails the Mission Impossible theme, but that's also kind of like an easy thing to nail. You know what I mean? Like if you could get use that just properly, the audience is on their feet and applauding. Whereas when it comes to the other music throughout this movie, almost none of it works for me whatsoever and it pulls me out of the movie. I will say, just as like a little side uncredited note, um, this is around the time where Lauren Balfe is working underneath uh Hans Zimmer yeah as like a member of his orchestra so technically this is the first Lauren Balfe Mission Impossible score to some extent and he scored what Fallout and Dead Reckoning Fallout and Dead Reckoning uh incredible work on Fallout I listen to that score pretty often both that and Dead Reckoning have fantastic scores yeah I, I think like I don't know that there's another Mission Impossible movie where I have a score issue it's really just this one um yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is my least favorite Mission Impossible score, but I like all the scores. Scott, where do you come down on the score issue? I'm, despite being musically trained and have been in bands, all sorts of things, I never really get that uppity about scores. It never really jump out to me, unless they're like terrible, like Eric Serra's GoldenEye score. I never really notice them too much. I can't say I listen to scores in my day-to-day life, so I'm not going to weigh in on this one. Cam, you seem like much more the expert, so I'll... I'll... You sidestep that one like a pro. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, li- listeners, listeners, let us know. What do you think of this score? You can debate it with Cam online, just not me. <laughs> weird, weird, like, side tangent. Um, a score that I've been listening to a lot has been the score to uh, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie. Oh, okay. I'd listened to it for, like, months before I'd actually watched the movie, which is a kind of interesting uh, failure uh okay but but good score so uh everybody uh let let us know how you feel about guy Ritchie's king arthur score well speaking of richie you know how does the mission impossible 2 score compare to the operation fortune score scott oh my god (laughs) operation fortune had a score so on to my dislike then just pivoting away from cam's terrible question uh, I was going to talk about Doug Ray Scott because I feel yeah. like that's something worth talking about. I was also going to talk about the lack of depth for Tandy Way Newton's character. When you think about the 
the seeds that she grew from, the Ingrid Bergman character in Notorious, and how much agency she had in the 1940s compared to what Tandy Way's getting here. And I don't know whether we've done enough talking about either of those things. So I'll, I'll open it up to you two. Do you want to talk about that or should I just pick another dislike? Um, no, I think both are easy discussions. Not easy, but interesting. Yeah, the Tandy Way Newton stuff is, I mean, because we've talked so much about Doug Ray Scott not working, but like the Tandy Way Newton stuff you know you set her up as a as a burglar which mm. is interesting it's kind of almost it reminded me a lot of the dark knight rises the way they introduced catwoman yeah definitely movie as well yeah um so like it's not ineffective in setting her up as a character but i like the moment where she injects herself with the uh with the virus mm-hmm. as a way to put a stop to a very tense situation in that you know kind of uh ceasefire in the firefight um i think like that is an interesting character choice, but it also feels like they don't know what to do with her after that. It's just kind of like her wandering around the streets of Sydney looking helpless. And it doesn't feel like the movie cares that much about her character, which is kind of like damning when you look at the point of view of the Anthony Hopkins character and the way he sees her in the mm. movie. The movie often does the same thing. Yeah. Well, this is this is the, the fundamental problem here with using the Notorious template, because at that point in the film, if we're using Notorious for a second, if you haven't seen it, Ingrid Bergman's character is sent to go and stay with Claude Rains and his mother, and they poison her, and she's basically your POV for the rest of the film, more or less, and you're watching her slowly waste away being poisoned by this family, waiting for Cary Grant to come and save her. Yeah. Whereas in Mission Impossible 2, Tom Cruise is the focus, Tandy Way Newton's poisoned, but off to the side. You have no idea what she's doing whilst being scared of being poisoned or what's going to happen to her. You don't feel any of that tension because she's not there. That's true. They keep her off screen like because she's injected. And then you, I think, check in with her like once maybe after that. But it's not like you are watching someone go through the experience of like, I have a deadly virus in my system that's going to kill me in 20 hours. What is that like? Yeah, she's not like running to a hospital and be like, I'm infected. Please help me. She's going, I'm going to go stand on a cliff. There's also no real, like, timetable to her infection that you feel. Which really, when it's like, here's how much time you have, and then the movie immediately drops the amount of time that you have, it's kind of hard to, like... Like, in Fallout, they certainly exceed the amount of time that they have before they all have to cut on one. But you're Mm -hmm. constantly like, holy fuck, this bomb's gonna go off, here's the objective, here's the trigger. You'll just, like, get these cutaway shots of her just walking and, like looking very drowsy like she's taking too much allergy meds and then yeah. the movie just uh will go to like flying kicks not that i have a problem with flying kicks but you kind of forget that that's the objective after a bit her performance i i think she's a movie star um yeah like she mm-hmm. captivates the screen i think there's certainly a reason for when uh when ving rames has his monologue to rebecca ferguson saying in all my years knowing Ethan, there's only one woman he's truly loved. I think there's a reason why Anne Way Newton was not uh, brought up in there. But, you know, it also doesn't roll off the tongue that smoothly. Like, in all of my life, I've only known him to, like, two women. One of them is Tandy Newton, but we won't talk about her. <laughs> Tandy Way Newton, we won't <laughs> talk about that. Let's talk about Michelle Monaghan. I'm just sad that she didn't get her, uh, you know, Gal Gadot on top of a submarine moment at the end of Dead Reckoning Part One. Where was that? I don't, I don't think she ever wants to come back to those. A because of her friendship with Nicole Kidman, and B just uh, in general. Oh, really? Yeah, that's mm. it. I, I've never heard her say a good thing about 
Mission Impossible 2, and the more popular these movies have gotten, the more vocal she's been about it. Okay. Well, then the last thing I was going to bring up in dislikes is more of a scope thing. Now, I'm not saying that the Mission Impossible films have to be Bond in the sense of having this globe-trotting sort of scale to it all, but I think setting it all in Australia Hmm. and a little bit of Spain, I think, is a detriment to the film because it feels a bit smaller, like the world is smaller, whereas Mission Impossible 1 is going all over the world. Yeah, I mean, it's nice for me, just nostalgia-wise, to revisit Sydney because I Mm -hmm. had a great time when I was there for an extended period of my 20s. Um, but, uh, it does feel like it's, maybe that's part of the problem is like, you want to be leaping to different locations because they introduce a new energy. Yeah. And that's kind of why Bond does it. That's why Mission Impossible does it. Um, and you can even look at Dead Reckoning and say like, hey, they don't necessarily need the like Morocco sequence at the start of Dead Reckoning, but it does introduce a different energy and a different type of action scene Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, does stand out. Whereas this one it does kind of feel like that slog through Sydney for a long period of time. And it's not until you kind of change up the energy with a motorcycle chase or you have the stuff up front, you know, on the cliffs uh, in the U.S. with Tom Cruise. Was that in the U.S., Nathan? No, that was in Sydney. Was that in Sydney also? Yeah. The whole movie stays in Sydney after they go to, where do they go, Spain? Okay, I thought it might have been Utah or something like that. Oh, okay. No, no, no. And I think... uh, I think a big problem with using Sydney as a backdrop obviously can look gorgeous uh, in a lot of different things. And I do kind of appreciate it as an unintentional throwback to the 80s Mission Impossible series that's just completely shot in Australia. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, Sydney was used for the Matrix as like a bland, here is like a computer simulation of what an American city would be like. <laughs> So to just set it there after a while, and then like the motorcycle chase, which is impressive, but is done with like a bunch of like sedans in the middle of like suburbs of like you know Sydney. Yeah, it just kind of is just a boring backdrop until they get to the jagged rocks and the sand. And I think maybe this movie taught them that it's better to just keep hopping locations just to introduce new energy through the movie because that's kind of the problem here well all the mission impossible movies are kind of vibes movies same with the bond movies i mean Mm -hmm. that's why i kind of uh i mean i didn't necessarily not understand complaints about tenant but when people are like yeah if it's just vibes and i can't understand the plot then like you know what are we even doing here i understand the plots every bond movie i'm like really really tell me what from russia with love is like truly about like fully not that, not that you can't fully explain it, but it doesn't matter. It's all about the vibes and the locations. And the vibes are very weird in this movie. Very rancid at times. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think they were smart to make the MacGuffin easy to understand in this movie. And I think it's handled well. Yeah. Um, because you can just focus on the energy. And so if you respond to the energy of Mission Impossible 2, like Scott does more so, then you can not sit there like Tenet or some of the other Bond films and be like, wait, what is going on? You understand what's going on very cleanly in this movie. The jury is still out on Octopussy. I like Octopussy. Oh, I, I mean, I like the movie a lot too, but the plotting of it is uh, all over the place. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's all over the place for sure. Now, uh, let's just go to uh, any final notes before we get to the knock list. I have a couple. Nathan, is there anything you haven't brought up about MI2 you want to get off your chest? Um... Let me think. 
I feel like we kind of, oh, oh, I think it's worth discussing with the Dugaray Scott performance, um, his kind of homoerotic uh, North by Northwest Martin Landau-esque uh, relationship with uh, Richard Roxburgh. Yeah. Because there's more sexual chemistry between the two of them than Tandaway Newton and any of her male co-stars. There's a couple of glances that I got a, well, we're talking about vibes. I got a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like Rich- Richard Roxburgh's attitude mm. throughout. Like he definitely seems, it, it's not just like a professional, this woman could endanger our mission. There's a lot more coming off of his character. And I wonder if that is. Very jealous partner vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I wonder if it is just the fact that, like, Richard Roxburgh, um, you know, capable actor, is given this character who kind of underwritten on the page and is injecting something into it to make it more interesting. Yeah. Another thing I did want to bring up is, when this is more like an open discussion, when do you think we can do uh, Deadly Virus as a plot line for a spy movie again? Um, we got, like, five years, maybe? A couple more years, I'd say. Okay. Yeah, a little further down the road. Yeah. Yeah. We we need to we need to have forgotten uh COVID a bit more, I think, before we get back to that. There's been films that have like entire plot lines scrapped because of COVID. Yeah, you can feel it with like no time to die for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like um there was gonna be a Star Trek film built around a deadly virus story that was completely just oh, jettisoned completely. Yeah. Red alert. <laughs> My notes were a, a question and a comment. Uh the comment is Anyone have any thoughts on Doug Ray Scott's quadruple denim outfit? <laughs> I'm wearing it now. <laughs> uh, it's got to be horrible in the Australian heat. Oof, that's got to chafe. That's got to chafe. He is, for reference, folks, I think it's towards the end of the film, he is wearing a denim shirt, a denim jacket, a denim tie, and denim trousers. I mean, it depends on the time of year. Sydney isn't necessarily blazing hot. That's more when you go up the coast. Um... It could have been tolerable, I suppose. Trust, uh, trust the Canadian to come out swinging for uh, double denim. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, and finally, my comment was: it's actually interesting to see a Mission Impossible film where Ethan doesn't go rogue. Right. Um. Yeah. No, that is cool to see. He um, technically doesn't go rogue in Fallout. People kind of forget that because the the IMF is not disbanded. It's just the CIA that's after them. Okay. Right. Yeah. So he doesn't necessarily go rogue. There's just a moment where it's like, hey, let's bring you in for questioning. But then at that point, shit just completely goes off. Okay. Mm, Okay. So it's never like anybody's actively pursuing him, but the syndicate. There's that joke in, I think, Fallout or Dead Reckoning or something where he just always goes rogue. So I just, I actually, going back to this, I just thought, oh, he actually doesn't in this one. That's just nice. Yeah. Yeah, Dead Reckoning makes that joke with Shea Wiggum giving a Best Supporting Actor-worthy performance. There it is. <laughs> it's incredible. There it is. And Cam, any final notes Whoa. from you? Uh, yeah, I got a few things. Uh, it's the year 2000, and there's some wobbly-looking CG in this movie. Uh, there's the plane right at the start of the movie, which is really um, you know, blazing a trail for the uh, CG plane at the end of Die Another Day. Uh, also, like, there's the stunt of Tom Cruise diving into the uh, you know, biosite facility. Mm-hmm. That I know they did a practical physical stunt of Tom Cruise taking a massive you know dive, and it looks like garbage in the movie. Yeah. It just looks like a CG environment that he's diving through. It looks like he's in the Matrix. So, um, not a big fan of that. Um, couple other things I had. Um, there's a use of a cigar cutter 
that the Doug Ray Scott villain Oof. uses, I think is used pretty effectively, but I still think Larry Drake owns the cigar cutter shtick from Darkman. He will forever be the cigar cutter badass. Yeah, they, they rip off Darkman twice in this movie with the mask and the duct tape underneath. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. Huh. Yeah. Darkman for the win. There you Sam go. Raimi. Darkman references. Well, Sam Raimi did work on Hard Target. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Co-directed it. I will say, uh, just piggybacking off of you saying the CGI looks bad and all that, we'll say this movie does look better than a lot of good blockbusters that came out last year. It does, and it also looks a lot better than a lot of the 2000-era blockbusters as well. So it's more that yeah. those specific spots really jumped out to me as pretty poor. But... I mean, it, it looks better than Die Another Day looks. Uh, yes, it yeah. does. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with that. And Cam, you have one more? By a considerable margin. Yeah, just the last one I had. Um, Luther's slow-mo bomb in his van is very reminiscent of the grenades in Die Hard 2 where Luther has like a 10 second timer, but if you actually time it, it's about, I don't know, seven minutes. <laughs> That's a really cool shot of uh, him looking at the bottom of the uh, like reflection from the water. Mm. I like that. Yeah. But now we're just like really trying to find pearls. Well, you two are. I, I found loads. <laughs> Scott's <laughs> swimming in pearls right now. Oh. I thought you were phallically challenged, man. <laughs> Well, we've got two good quotes from this film now. Uh, Tom Cruise's package and my phallically challengedness. Okay, we're here, folks. Okay. <laughs> Knock list time. Uh, trust me, I've had worse said about me on a podcast. It doesn't faze me anymore. <laughs> Mission Impossible 1 made the knock list, quite rightly so, but this is the first time we've had a guest on talking about Mission Impossible, so we have three votes here. It could go either way, although I think we all know how everyone's voting. Nathan, you're up. Is Mission Impossible 2, MI2, making the knock list? Ah, uh, I'm going to say no, uh, very, very easily. Okay. It, it's not as if you haven't betrayed the last two hours. Yeah. Sorry, John Wu. No, I, I, don't, think he, uh, I don't think he has a problem with it. I think he's doing just fine without it. Um, well, that's one no. Cam, can you swing it? No. And you know what? I'm actually happy to have a no for a Mission Impossible film. And I'll tell you why. Because this is a series with such a high bar of excellence sure yeah that it's good to kind of set our parameters because i think it's very easy and sometimes frustrating for us when we have a string of like classics in a row where it's like well so is just every movie making it on yeah. and that was maybe an issue we ran into a bit with the connery bonds like there's some regrets i think there maybe a little bit uh depending on the movie and who the individual is that voted it on but um or didn't vote it on either way but with the Mission Impossibles, I think it's okay to have a Mission Impossible movie like this one that doesn't maybe measure up to uh, the better Mission Impossibles. So mm -hmm. we can kind of go, okay, well, that one doesn't make the knock list. Here's why the other ones do in the future. Okay. So my heart is officially broken. <laughs> Cue the Hans Zimmer score. It, it's time I disappear. Will we bury Scott when he's gone? <laughs> <laughs> Will you teach me while I'm here? Uh, I try. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want to see your defense. Come on, Daniel Caffey. Like, I want to hear it. I'm going to go with yes. But that's only because I know I'm not going to get it on. Sure. If I actually had the deciding vote here, and I will preface with this, if I had the deciding vote, I would probably go no. Because I know there are better Mission Impossible films coming, and I want to provide 
uh, like Cam says, some sort of barometer for success. I don't think this is the most successful Mission Impossible film. I think Mission Impossible 1 is better, and so that is on the knock list. I know at least one more in my head that is better than this, just off the top of my head, and I think that will probably make it too. So I want to sort of see where this series goes. But just because I like the soundtrack and John Woo's wooisms and the insanity of this film, I'm just going to give it a yes just because uh, I, I want it to have some love. That's fair. Are you frustrated at all that they don't use the Limp Biscuit, even instrumental version through the movie? Well, I thought they did when he throws the glasses and you get the cut to the credits, or is that all Hans Zimmer? It's all Hans. That's Hans Zimmer. Ah, yeah. That is annoying then, because I know, well, we'll find out more about it, but you know, there was a lot of work to put in that, put that track together. Oh, there was. This is the only Mission Impossible soundtrack that has no uses of the plot theme, the like secondary theme to Mission oh. Impossible. The ba, ba, da, 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 yeah. Which I'd always thought was absent in the first one. It's just barely present. Hmm. Interesting. But it's there. Well, there you go, folks. Two no's and one uh, sort of thrown off yes just to give it a little bit of love. But as such, Mission Impossible 2 is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Nathan, thank you for coming uh, once again to the show, for flying in, rappelling in from the ceilings with a lovely green screen background. You look glorious. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to talk mission with you. I think we talked about having you on for a Mission Impossible podcast, you know, episode years ago when the show first started. So it's nice to bring it all around full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad y'all put me on for the best one. <laughs> <laughs> we thought you would have the most fun with this one. Yeah, it's no, no, no it's true. It's a fun one to talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm always down to talk mission. I'm always down to talk spy shit. I'm always down to talk. <laughs> We we like all those things. We like all those things. That's what we like in guests, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, sure, sure. I'll just throw it to you before we let you go. Um, I know, obviously, Mission Impossible came back for an episode last year, but where can people find you and hear you at the moment? Well, at the moment, you can find me on Twitter being a maniac, or sorry, on X, <laughs> uh, being a maniac, uh, at Nathan Flynn, N-A-T-H-A-N-F-L-Y-N-N. And then you can also find me uh, doing audio reviews over at oneofus.net. And then outside of that, you can listen to our back catalog on Mission Impotable, which you can find on pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, it's uh, spelled I-M-P-O-D-I-B-L-E. And uh, we, we plan on getting some stuff out, hopefully this year. I'm Literally, I, I was almost about to not be able to do this if I didn't get a new webcam for Christmas and have a barely functioning laptop. <laughs> uh, but, you know. But we're glad you did. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Always a pleasure to talk to you chaps. Uh, well, there'll be links in the show notes below to all of those things. You can go and check them out. And I think we are at least on one Mission Impossible episode. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You guys are definitely on one that actually my favorite bit with this episode is called Fake Out. Which, if you look up Mission Impossible and Fake Out on Google searches, it just says Mission Impossible. <laughs> Did you mean Mission Impossible Fallout? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> it's nice to know that we remain ungoogleable because this show is very hard to find as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, it's been a pleasure, Nathan. Thank you once again for joining us. Of course. Always here for a Dugaray Scott jam. Wowzers, there you go, folks. That is our second mission in the bag. And I think thoroughly accomplished. Absolutely. Again, thank you, Nathan, for coming on the show. His third time here on Spy Hards, and I urge you all to check out 
Mission Impotable. The links are in the show notes below. But Cam, I did mention it earlier in the episode, but I'll throw the question to you anyway. What have we got coming up next week? So next Tuesday, normal release slot, we will have an interview with co-writer Brandon Braga. He's going to join us to talk all about the development of the story of Mission Impossible 2. There's also some Star Trek questions in there and all sorts of other fun stuff. Plus, we just have a love affair with the movie Notorious. And so we talk Notorious for an extended period as well. Really fun interview. And then later in the week, on the Friday, we will release our interview with Mitchell Lieb, who was the exec in charge of the soundtrack of Mission Impossible 2. You are going to want to hear these stories about Limp Bizkit, Metallica, and Tom Cruise's dealings with them. It's crazy, fun, insightful, insider stuff. Do not miss that interview as well. We're not just blowing smoke on this one, folks. The Mitchell Lieb and the Brandon Bragger one as well both have some fantastic insights. But if you want to hear about the inner workings of what goes on in Tom Cruise's mind, that Mitchell Lieb interview is the one to listen to. And also just tune in if you want to find out what Tom Cruise serves his guests for lunch. Absolutely, Cam. Your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we sit down with Brandon Bragger and Mitchell Lieb to talk all about Mission Impossible 2 and much, much more. If you like what you heard on this episode, please consider supporting us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash spyhards. There are links in the show notes below. Going forward, we're going to be taking a look at spy TV shows over on the Patreon. More details at patreon.com slash spyhards. Check it out there. And if you don't already, make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, I'm going on vacation, but I'm not telling you where.